Have you been zombified by your evolutionary motives? Welcome to the Zombified Podcast, your source for fresh brains. I'm your host, Athena Actipus, psychology professor at ASU and chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And I'm your co-host, Dave Wundberg-Kenrick, media outreach program manager at ASU and brain enthusiast. Brains. 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 (laughs) So, uh... You know what I love about this episode? What's that? (laughs) (laughs) That we get to talk to your dad. That's true. Uh, We do. We get to talk to my dad, who um, didn't just come on the show because he's my dad. Uh, (laughs) He, uh, right, he does some research on stuff. He does. He is a, you know, really one of the founders of the field of evolutionary psychology. So uh, that's right. That's what he tells people. What was it so, like growing up with that? Um, it was, uh, that's a question I was totally not prepared to answer. Let me think about that. <laughs> uh, you know, it, I think it was, um, I mean, it was all I've ever known, but it definitely did have a big impact, I think, on how I view the world. Um, but it's all science-based, you know? And so I think in some sense it gives me an accurate view of the world, but it also sort of gives me a view of the world that doesn't necessarily uh, have a meaning, I guess. Mm. So so it, does it, like, you think you're more cynical than you would have otherwise been? Um, well, I mean, certainly, so my dad is cynical, even apart from his <laughs> research. <laughs> uh, and so... Uh, no, but I think uh, I think it's sort of it's sort of like growing up in a in a sort of existential crisis. Um, wow! <laughs> yeah. So, uh, um, in the best possible way, <laughs> uh, which is sort of I think what we what we're going to talk about today, right? Yeah, I mean, of, uh, this is sort of a way of bringing our listener into what it was like for you growing up with an evolutionary psychologist for a dad, right? Sure. Like, you know, well, what, why do we really do what we do? What are the motives underlying it? And are we really responsible for, you know, making the decisions ourselves? Or, are, are, you know, are we being guided by forces that are beyond us? And, right. and is there a right and wrong? You know, there's always these sort of questions of the naturalistic fallacy, which I actually think is really interesting in terms of yeah. zombified yeah like this well idea of, what is let's talk about what is that what is this naturalistic fallacy well just the idea that even if something is sort of natural uh that doesn't mean it's right you know it does it's sort of it's sort of this idea that even if we're zombified by our genes to pass on our genes that doesn't really give us a moral imperative to pass on our genes right mm-hmm. it's almost like we're zombified by ourselves um mm-hmm. so it's like just layers and layers of zombification is what you're saying yeah i think so i mean i think that it, yeah i think it's sort of that we're it, it raises this question of are we zombified at our core and uh-huh. what's our responsibility or not or really what yeah, is our responsibility because we bad? do have a responsibility ultimately right i mean even if we don't feel like we are fully autonomous, we at least have a responsibility to think about the ethical issues that are being raised and like try to be active in making those decisions. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of what sort of my dad's more recent 
sort of focus has been on is sort of this idea of, all right, given if we're saying, all right, we were designed to pass on our genes, how do we then go about doing that in a way that is essentially ethical? Yeah, so. yeah. Well, I think this was a awesomely rambly intro to what is admittedly a rather long and rambly episode that we have. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's I good, but it is long. It is it a is very long, long episode. So There's, don't feel like you have to listen to it all in one sitting. You know, you can listen to some of it and then, you know, come back to it later because it, it's a lot. But we didn't want to break it up into two episodes because it has a, a flow to it and uh, a conversational nature that we didn't want to break up. Well, let's check it out. All right. Let's hear from this week's Fresh Brain, Doug Kenrick. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying to be over-analytical. Retracing time to remind myself how Doug Kenrick, and I am a social psychology professor at Arizona State University. Excellent. And uh, what are your main interests? My main interests are, I'm afraid to say, fairly broad. Uh, I have for a long time been thinking about human social behavior in evolutionary perspective, and I have studied everything from altruism, aggression, attraction to xenophobia. Uh, so basically, probably, if you took any chapter in a social psychology textbook, uh, I have done some research where we try to look at a topic like social cognition or, you know, some kind of a cognitive bias and think about how would this look different if we thought about it in evolutionary terms. So you're basically taking an evolutionary lens to like all of human social behavior, essentially. Yes, or whatever, yeah, whatever strikes me as interesting, uh, or my students as interesting recently. Excellent. Cool. What do you, uh, what do you find most interesting these days? These days, so we have a paper which just got tentatively accepted, if we don't make some really big mistakes, that Perspectives on Psychological Science, in which we are, we have looked at people's fundamental motives. So we have a scale that asks you to what extent you're concerned with things like taking care of your children or protecting yourselves from the, the bad guys or, uh, you know, making friends or uh, gaining status or finding mates or keeping mates, which is a slightly different problem. Uh, and so people fill out this scale and, you know, each of those, each of the, of the things I just talked about has a, a subscale. So we, just a minute, the fundamental motives, that's like a way of sort of thinking about the things that evolution would have equipped us with in terms of motivations, right? So you're, that's already... 
kind of drawing from yes. evolutionary biology to understand human behavior. Right. So one of the things that evolutionary people do conceptually is to try to think, what are the problems that our ancestors would have had to solve? And particularly the ones that we continue to have to, to solve now, okay? Uh, and a lot of those problems were social problems, okay? They were making sure that your friends didn't reject you, because in the good old days, if you were thrown out of the group, you were likely to die, okay? Uh, <clears throat> and uh, everybody had to find mates. And so we sort of, you know, conceptually, well, we looked at Maslow's old pyramid of motives, and Maslow was arguing that humans don't just have one motivational state, one motivational goal, which is to feel good, but they have multiple goals, okay? And, and Maslow talked about distinguishing between basic physiological hungers and thirsts, you know, and then social needs, and then what he called the need for you know, self-actualization. And what we did is thought, okay, well, in modern evolutionary terms, how would we revisit that pyramid? And so uh, what we presume... And in fact, there's some evidence from developmental psych that, that the, the motives kind of come into play at different phases of your life. When you're a little baby, all you're concerned with is getting food and keeping warm. Right, because the babies that didn't manage to do that exactly didn't not, survive, yes, right? Yeah. And so they didn't have the genes go on into the next generation. So right. the babies that were best at staying warm and getting fed and getting protected Right, getting their parents to take care of them by going, wah, right, and smiling when they did something good. Yeah, so so speaking of which, I just, I feel like we can't go on without acknowledging. Right, we probably should have addressed this early on. But, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so let's let's take a minute to say, so we're, there's a reason our voices sound very similar, I think, to people at home, and that's that we're related, Right. Um, yes, so. I was around uh, when Dave was saying "wah." Yes, and also, actually, on that same note, we've been talking about this uh, fundamental motive stuff a lot in a in a way that I think would be interesting, possibly for a, another podcast at some point, because mm -hmm. I know we're going to talk about sort of robo parasites. But we've been talking about the ways that. Uh, so my dad and I have been talking about the ways that movies tap into these different fundamental motives and mm -hmm. the sort of dilemmas and the debates that people have, because you can't really always optimize every one of these things. And so the, it, it leads to a lot of dilemmas that, that are very cognitively, they're, they're intrinsically interesting, I think, uh, mm -hmm. which I think is what makes for good movies. And I think that'd be hmm. an interesting thing to discuss in a right. yeah. future. Well, it's, I mean, in a way, it's kind of related to the topic that we sort of set out to talk about today, right? Of sort of the smartphones and all that it has to do with screens. And that's that's true. How screens um, present that's us true. with things. So maybe that, we could talk about that yeah. a bit yeah. today, too, because yeah. I think it's a really interesting. So well, let me just amplify one thing that you said, which is this notion that there's always trade-offs. So in fact, when we thought about Maslow's pyramid again, we also were thinking about a kind of a pyramid that they have in biology of life history. And according to life history theory, Basically, every organism needs to allocate resources are scarce. There's not an infinite amount of resources. And those organisms that got more resources and were able to build their bodies and then turn those into offspring were the ones that are around today. And so all animals face kind of, there's three choices, okay? How much do I invest 
in building my own body, okay? And then when do I start reproducing? When do I start changing my investment strategy to uh, invest in my offspring? And then should I keep investing in these offspring or should I actually seek new mates, which is also another way to invest in your resources? And so there's always Wait, trade-offs. Isn't there also like, do I keep investing in these offspring or have more offspring? Or have more offspring, right? offspring. So right. like how many yeah. offspring you're going to yes. have. So, so there's, yeah. all, there's probably more trade-offs than I there's just all, said. There's, life history theory is like so many It's so all many about trade-offs. trade-offs. Yeah. But I think the punchline of life history theory and sort of the punchline of life is that you can't have it all. You can't maximize everything. you got to pick one place to invest your resources. And animals are designed to do a pretty good job of that, okay, to invest the resources in such a way that if their ancestors did it, they would have survived and reproduced. And so... That's kind of the big game in life. So, and what we'd say about humans is that humans are equipped with a set of systems. We face a number of questions, okay, about how to allocate. Do I, do I allocate my resources to protecting myself? Do I allocate my resources to making friends? Do I allocate my resources to gaining status? And there you can already see a conflict because if I'm going to step on your head on my way up, then you're not going to like me as much. You wouldn't so, do that, though, would you? Well, I wouldn't do that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not in direct competition because you know, I'm a lot older well, than actually, you Actually, well, that's, uh, that's an interesting but, thing because there's also ways that these different, you can work, these resources or these motives sometimes compete and there's also things people can do that can that can improve multiple motives at the same time. Like yeah. working together on a project can right. build affiliation and it can build the yes. status for everybody's. Right. Um, so it isn't always a zero-sum game. Right? Right. Cooperation is a, is a way in which you can advance your own interests and another's interests at the same time. Right. If you find those things where you have aligned interests and then you work on those things yes. and you don't do anything with the things where you have different interests, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, that's a simple way to just right. get some of the benefits of cooperation. Exactly. I mean, in fact, it's, it's one of the things I think a new way that people think about it. it used to be that evolution was considered a sort of bloody tooth and nail competition. And it's not that there isn't a lot of that out in the animal kingdom and even in human life, but it turns out that the people that we like the most, the people that we actually most want to have as leaders in organizations are actually the people we trust, the people who we think are actually serving our interests as well as theirs at the mm-hmm. same time. A good leader is a sort of an invisible leader because they're helping you get ahead. And by helping you get ahead, they help the whole organization do well. And so, yes, mm-hmm. uh, not all trade-offs, not everything is a zero-sum game. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And in fact, well, let, let's go back. The topic of that you guys are interested in, which is zombification, or basically the... Why don't you tell me what that means? Yeah, so when you essentially get hijacked your brain gets hijacked your behavior gets influenced by things that are not necessarily in your own best interest right so i think if you think about our sort of this uh, imaginary maslovian hierarchy where all of these every one of these goals i have an interest okay my interest is to get resources to protect myself to build a house you know to put an alarm system in to put in locks on the doors okay uh, then I have an interest in making friends, people who will cooperate with me, who will share with me, who will, you know, uh, if I give them lunch, they'll pay me back, okay? Uh, and they'll help me out when I need to do something like move a couch. Uh, then I, so I invest resources in friends. And wherever there is, wherever there's resources in nature, there are parasites, okay? Because there's energy being exchanged. And 
parasites want part of that energy. Okay? Yeah, they just want their little piece. You know, they're they just want- trying to make a living too. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, I, I came across a great quote, and I think it was from E.L. Wilson, said that what parasites are predators that consume their hosts in units of less than one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and that's a lovely way to think about it. I mean, another important thing, I think, to think about parasitism as we go on is that, that there's a continuum of parasitism, okay? There is, for example, at one end, I'm not even sure we call this parasitism, but there's mutualism in which I want your resources, but I also have something to give you and we help each other out. So we're both kind of mutually exploiting one another for, our, for the good, the net gain of both of us, okay? Uh, then there's commensalism, which is basically one of us is taking advantage of the other, but not really to any great cost. Okay, so uh, an example in nature is a pilot fish which swims along with a shark and basically takes some of the scraps when the shark finds some prey. Okay, no cost to the shark to speak of. Okay, uh, then there's what they call microparasitism, which doesn't mean it's microscopic, but it's like a mosquito. A mosquito is really consuming only the teeniest part of its prey. Okay, it may accidentally bring you something that will kill you, okay, but mostly par- <laughs> mostly that's not their job, but what they're doing is wanting a teeny weeny bit of your blood, so much that you're not even going to notice it, okay, that you won't even maybe even catch it when they sting you and take a little, they're not trying to sting you, they're trying to sneak in there, get a little bit of your blood. And then there's sort of big time parasites, that some of which approach predators, but they do it very slowly, so there's like, the worst examples are things like parasitic wasps. Okay, what they do is they paralyze a caterpillar, lay their eggs inside, the caterpillar stays alive, the eggs hatch, and then they basically eat their way out of the host. So they consume it very slowly. So that's really nasty parasitism. And when we talk about humans and, you know, parasitism or fundamental motives, whenever I'm trying to invest to make friends or whenever I'm trying to invest to make mates, there's somebody out there trying to ride there, somebody trying to be either a pilot fish or a mosquito, okay, or even possibly a parasitic wasp who's going to try to take everything I've got. Uh, And at the same time, though, uh, Mm -hmm. there are others that are trying to just say, okay, if you want this, I can help you, okay? If you, Josh Ackman and I have done research on how people help each other find mates, Okay, and that's sort of, you know, in the interests. If I, if, if, you know, uh, a friend of mine, so I'm Dave's father, if he's seeking a mate, you know, it's in my interest to help him find the best possible mates uh, because that has, you know, it's benefits for me. Okay, but even if I, I were, you know, just helping a friend who was looking for a mate, uh, I want that friend to be happy because if my friends are happy, and they have good mates, then we have, we've, our network has extended, okay, in a positive way. Okay, right. so we do, we do sometimes, you know, have mutual interests, mm-hmm. and then there's other times when maybe I just want to, you know, take a little bit out of the person who I'm uh, tagging along with in the mosquito What would be, what would be an example of a sort of social mosquito? A social situation. mosquito, yeah, that's a good one. Um, I think if you think about... Uh, the finance industry, they mostly don't want to kill you, okay, but they do take a teeny bit of every interaction that you, every time you move some of your funds, the finance industry takes a little cut, okay, Uh and they're not, they actually hope 
that you'll get bigger and fatter financially so they can keep taking a little bit bigger cut. So they're not really trying to kill you, but they are trying to suck a little bit of that blood out. Every time there's some resources exchanged, they that's want a, some. That's a special kind of parasite, though, one that actually needs its host to stay alive and yes. does better if its host It does thrives. better. Oh, you're right. So that is interesting. There's actually yeah. a combination of mutualism and um, mosquitoism in yeah. the finance industry. Yeah. Uh, Right. I mean, I think it depends because, well, the finance industry is big. So it's like if you have somebody who's actively managing a fund, they're trying to like, then it's a little more mutual. Um, but then there's other where if they're, if they're just taking their interest, yeah, regardless the, of how much you have. There's the Bernard there Madoffs out there who are pretending to be mutualists and actually are parasitic wasps. I mean, Bernard Madoff actually destroyed some of his clients by taking their money and investing it in mm-hmm. nothing. Uh, so... An interesting question we have when we're approaching relationships is, is this person a, like a pilot fish? Okay. Are, are they uh, like a clownfish that's going to help us? Okay. Uh, or uh, are they a piranha? Uh, or just a little mosquito. <laughs> a little mosquito, <laughs> yes. Well, what, well, they probably have a fist that's like a little mosquito, too. Actually, there is one that Bob Cialdini uses it in his book on influence, the saber-toothed blenny, which pretends to be a cleaner fish. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a, a fish like cleaner fish because they come along and eat a little bit of fungus off their scales right, right. Uh, and clean them up. Uh, but the, the saber-toothed blenny looks just like a cleaner fish, a little teeny fish, comes up to a big moray eel and... Bites a chunk out and then swims away. It doesn't kill the eel, okay, uh, but it does take a little mm-hmm. bit. And I think that that's part of our the issue in social life is trying to figure out yeah. uh, what is this what is this other person, you know. So, uh, so one thing I was thinking about in terms of the mosquito, like I can think even for myself, right, for my interactions will be different. So like if I'm if I go to get my hair cut from the person who's been cutting my hair for years, mm-hmm. I might give that person an extra tip. And I'm trying to, you know, they're doing a good job. You're cultivating but it's a, a relationship more. with them in the yeah. long term. Whereas if I'm buying something on Amazon where I don't know the person, I'm going to take the cheapest, I'm going to get the best deal for myself. You know what I mean? And in a sense, that sort of relationship, I'm being a little bit more like, I'm going I'm to take that little bite if I can, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think that might be... That's an interesting point, I think, because I think gets, we're going to talk about robo-parasites. And I think, so our interactions online are, you know, there's been a big debate within the field of psychology about uh, the question of what are, ultim- what's, what are ultimately people seeking, okay? And one model, the kind of uh, the economic model, the Wall Street model is that everybody's selfish. Everybody's looking out for their own interests, okay? And that makes sense if you think about Wall Street and economics. Strangers dealing with strangers in uh, financial trades. Your company does well if you can cheat. Not cheat, but if you can get the most you can possibly get. Get the best deal. Get the product for the cheapest. Uh, And what's interesting about that metaphor is that it worked its way into psychology. And people, when I was a young man, used to think, well, that's the way social relationships are. And it turns out that that model doesn't actually apply to close relationships. Yeah, it was also, I mean, really prevalent for a long time in evolutionary biology and cooperation theory, right? That like organisms evolved to be selfish and that mm-hmm. the conditions for cooperation are, you know, so hard to achieve. Um, you know, the whole idea of the selfish gene that mm-hmm. Dawkins popularized. I mean, on one level, yes, it's true. Things will evolve to 
you know, have genotypes that allow them to accomplish the, the goals that perpetuate those genotypes, but that doesn't necessarily make for individuals that look selfish. Yes. It makes for individuals who look like they're really loving and caring for their offspring and they intrinsically like. care about their friends. They actually do. They actually do. Yes. yes. I mean, that's a, yeah. good, that's a great point. Selfish genes don't make selfish people necessarily. Right. They can. Okay. But in some sense, your self-interests are best served by mutualism because yeah. people don't hate you when now there's sort of different levels here too. There's your interactions with your kin. There, in fact, you know, when Dave does well, that's 50% of a benefit to me because I share half of his genes, okay? And if I lend him $1,000, it's really only $500 to, to my genes, okay? <laughs> does it really because, work that way, Doug? It's discounted. No, not, not psychologically, but from an evolutionary perspective, even the math is, the math is different when I'm thinking about my kin, okay? Because it's in my, and especially if I'm the parent and I have fewer remaining reproductive years, okay? And I don't Every have- Every year. Yes, right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Thanks. Thanks for pointing that You're out. You're welcome. Uh, I may die before the end of this interview, you know, in this case. Uh, I hope you can get some use out of it. Dave, and, uh, but, uh, so in any event, I, I actually do share genetic interests with my kin. But even with my friends, I do share, if our team is strong, we all benefit, okay? And that's something that I think biologists are still struggling with and economists are still struggling with, this, this idea that somehow everything's going to move back towards cheating. No, actually, the system should, and I, I'm yeah. not in favor of group selection at all, but I would say basically that it's still selfish. I want to be part of a team where I can trust you to have my interests, and the more you can, you've done this research, Athena, on the walkaway strategy. You know, I don't want to be policing all the time, but I do want to get the hell away from you. If I find out that you're, you're maybe going to be sneaky cheating a little bit on, you know, then I'll just move to a new partner. Yeah, and partner so, choice and then fitness interdependence. I mean, if mm -hmm. you're in a group where your survival and your reproduction actually depends on the well-being of others in your group, then you don't need reciprocity or kin selection or anything. We all just need to do well. Exactly. The better, right. The more, no. you know, just sharing. So Kim Hill has that. Kim Hill and Magdalena Hurtado and, I guess, Hillary Kaplan. And there's one other person, uh, Hawks. What is her first Kristen name? Kristen Hawks. Kristen Hawks. They, they published some classical work showing that, <clears throat> in fact, amongst the Ache, was it, the, that these people who live down in Paraguay, that if you actually record the amount of calories that every family brings in on a daily basis, uh, there are periods when, some, when everybody would starve, okay? But what happens is some families, you know, get a, find a pig one day, okay? And they can't store it, so they share it. And on average, when, you, when you're sharing like that, uh, everybody survives much better. So it's actually in my interest for you to continue on doing well if you're a member of my group. It's still selfish, but actually it's selfish at a an ultimate level, but at approximate level, it's yes. unselfish. Well, psychologically, it's not, right? Psychologically, like psychology also, is not yeah. selfish. And also behaviorally, it's not. Yeah. So here, here's a question, though. With how many people are on Earth right now? Uh, seven billion, I think. Okay, so we've got seven billion people, right? Mm -hmm. And we're designed for much smaller groups. So 
does like I'm I'm, one, I'm thinking about the fact that you know we've got sort of wealth inequality at all time highs. Is it that people are in these sort of small groups where they're they're trying to help their their own little group, but is that at the cost of there is the competition between groups? There's no question yeah. about that. Mm-hmm. So the Trumps of the world and the people working in the West Virginia uh, coal mines, they're at odds with one another, okay, despite what Trump may tell them. Uh, but the poor people right. are, are exploited by the rich people, and the rich people have no interest in increasing their taxes. And so, yes, there is intergroup competition. You know? So th- this model isn't a Pollyannish model that says everything's nice and everybody's going to get along. But it is saying that within your groups, cooperation has always been a better strategy than being a cheater because what do we do with, you know, we tar and feather people who we find out to be cheaters or we just leave them alone we, or we, we expel them from the group. And so, uh, so at least at the local level, cooperation. And, I, you know, I think this, you're raising a big question because at the broadest level, perhaps we can use these mechanisms of small group cooperation to think about other people because it turns out that now we're all in the same boat. Okay? Right. So, <laughs> we're we all are on the same, same earth. We are all. We're yeah. all in the same little tribe, as it turns out. Yeah. You know? And it's getting clearer and clearer all the time that we have to cooperate across tribes. And the extent to which we can learn about enough about evolutionary psychological principles of cooperation to get people to think about other people as to understand that, in fact, we have shared fates now. Yeah. Uh, so well, I, I wonder, you if, know what, though, just oh. want to say we got to share our brains, too. Right. <laughs> if we're going to solve these problems. Spell that out for me. <laughs> well, so, you know, all of these issues that we're now facing, they are not just sort of cooperation dilemmas, but they also involve a huge number of complex systems that no one human brain can represent. Mm -hmm. So we have to be able to talk across disciplines and all have some understanding of cooperation theory, I think, to to get somewhere. So I'm wondering if we want to... Hopefully not all of us. (laughs) Hopefully just enough of us that can influence leaders or the the leaders themselves. I wonder if we want to talk about sort of technology and how technology ties into this. But I'd like to come back to this at the end because normally we sort of come back and talk about sort of. Yeah. um, Can I jump in with uh, because I think we talked about the fundamental motives at the beginning in this sort Mm -hmm. of context of. Um, you know, where are there aligned interests with fundamental motives? Where are there potentially conflicting interests? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's another interesting dimension to this that maybe can kind of move us into talking about uh, roboparasites, which is, you know, the actual parasitism of the mechanisms in the brain, which is a little bit different, right, than like a social parasite, someone who maybe mm-hmm. wants to um, interfere with your yes. motives to meet their own goals. Like, l- let's talk a little bit about like what mm. is actually going on in terms of the psychology underlying these mechanisms, and you know, does that psychology actually get parasitized? Yes. Okay, so that's a good segue. It's actually so. Let me talk a little bit about this. So, <clears throat> evolutionary psychologists presume that in fact the brain is not designed to just do one thing to feel good. It's designed to do a bunch of different things. Sometimes, which Sometimes those things are, in fact, a little bit contradictory, okay? Sharing with my son, Dave, I use a different set of rules than I would use in sharing with a stranger in the market uh, on Wall Street, okay? Uh, And so 
I have a whole bunch of little systems, okay? And the systems don't always, depending upon what's currently active in terms of the goals and opportunities that, you know, and the threats that are out there in the environment, one, one of my little subsystems, we think of the brain as, a, as sort of divided into what we might call sub-selves, okay? Not literally little chunks of your brain, but basically there are sub-programs in your brain. So and, give us a, an example of okay. like two different sub-programs. Okay, so let's take the program for, uh, for gaining status, okay? okay. Uh, when, I'm, when that is primed, I'm thinking about getting ahead. I'm thinking about, you know, doing something that other people will notice. I'm thinking about distinguishing myself from other people uh, versus the program for affiliation, okay? When, a, when the program for affiliation is primed, I'm thinking of actually being level with other people and wanting them to be like me and similar to me. I don't want to stand out necessarily. I want, I want to draw out similarities. Oh, we're just like each other, okay? Uh, and... Uh, or think of the, the another dis distinction might be sharing with kin versus, you know, sharing with friends. With friends, I might have a reciprocity thing. If I'm not related to you and I'm always buying you lunch and you never buy me lunch, I may start to notice that. Okay. I think um, maybe he has been buying me lunch. Yes, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been like, keeping track of it. This is his way of yeah, letting you know. It's actually, well, I, I know, know it's not true because, because, uh, <laughs> because Athena is Greek and so she's always serving other people food. So I go to your house. You maybe are forgetting this. And I eat everything in sight. And so, you and know, drink uh, everything too, yeah, actually. Right? <laughs> yeah. Let's not talk about that. Okay. Um, and, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, okay, but on the other hand, when I'm dealing with Dave, if I buy Dave lunch all the time, you know, or at least 75% of the time, if we're going to do the yeah. math, um, then that's fine with me, okay, because I want to transfer my resources to my offspring, okay, with my friends, I want to trade resources, okay, and so those are different, they're different systems, and so the assumption is that depending upon what situation I happen to find myself in, who's there, what are the opportunities? What are the threats? You know, are there a lot of dangerous looking people? Are there a lot of attractive potential mates in the situation? Uh, are there people who I might want to impress to gain status or to maintain status? Uh, that's going to trigger a different little system in my head, a different calculation system in my head uh, that's going to say, okay, now I want to do this. Okay, now I'm going to do the, you know, I'm going to engage in these. I'm going to cooperate now. I'm going to share now. I'm going to say a funny joke now. Okay, I'm so, not, I'm so going to suppress. The idea is we have kind of all of these um, sort of sub programs in our heads. Yes. And when we're in a situation where we could potentially increase our evolutionary fitness, by doing a certain thing that helps to fulfill those goals that like that program becomes active and it's like, yes. go and impress that person or go and talk to that attractive person or um, take care of your kid. They look hungry. Right. Yeah. And so, so these systems turn out to be extremely powerful. I would say that almost everything we do is under the control of one of these systems. We're either, you know, we're powerfully motivated to do certain kinds of things. So let's start at the very bottom of the pyramid. We have a system that is designed to get us calories and, you know, it's basic physiological survival. We want the nutrients to keep us alive. We want to satisfy our thirst and our hunger, okay? And that's a good thing because our ancestors who didn't care to feed themselves, okay, they didn't become our ancestors, okay? Our ancestors did a pretty good job. They did the best job they could have of extracting calories from the environment. We come from a long line of people who are good at 
getting resources from the world. Exactly right. And, you know, getting food and, mm -hmm. you know, and drinking. But so wherever you have a system, you know, that's designed to motivate people to go seek resources, there's going to be a profit that one could make from either providing those resources or attempting to sort of, you know, parasitize people as they are seeking after those resources. Can you give an example? So there's an example of providing the resources. You know, supermarkets wouldn't exist if not for the fact that people are hungry a lot of the time and they really like food. And so that's always a reliable business to get into, you know, the serving food or, you know, uh, supermarkets probably have, they've always been there or whatever. Markets are, do well. Uh, on the other hand, there's also some kind of, the people that are selling you food, now there's competition to be, I want you to buy my food as compared to the other guy's food. So I'm making, uh, I'm, I have a choice. What can I make in terms of desserts for you? I can make something that's really healthy. Okay, I can give you, for example, cranberries with no sugar on them. Okay, I don't know if you've ever eaten cranberries with no sugar on them. <laughs> yeah. They're bitter, okay? Yeah. Um, and That's it turns out that when you give kids, well, when you give kids the, the choice, between, well, let's take plums with no sugar on them, okay? okay Dave doesn't actually better. even like plums, okay? Right. Um, when you <laughs> offer kids the choice between <laughs> fruit and what Ben and Jerry's is selling, they'll almost always take Ben and Jerry's, even over really good fruit, even over like ripe strawberries, kids will go for Ben and Jerry's double chocolate fudge. Why? Because it not only has the sugar, it has the fat, so it has things that our ancestors really could never get. So what Ben and Jerry's is doing is they're basically attempting to satisfy us in, at one level, uh, but they're also kind of, they're really not helping us. Right. Okay? They're, they're sort of tapping into, we're designed to crave those things, right? Yes. We have like... And they're tapping into it by giving us more than we actually even need, okay? And let's go one step further. There are some kinds of, you know, Ben and Jerry's is pushing something that we actually want, and it gives us My something. stomach is starting yeah, to crumble. I'm getting hungry. <laughs> <laughs> double chocolate fudge. Okay. Uh -oh. um, but then there are other kinds of, you know, so for example, the alcohol industry, uh, when we eat, our pleasure center in our brain says, that was a good thing, okay? When you, when you eat and you're hungry, it says, there's a little signal in our brain that goes, good, 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 do it again, do it again. Well, it turns out that when you drink alcohol, the pleasure center goes off, you know, basically releases pleasure. Uh, but you really didn't necessarily do yourself that much good. There's a little bit of nutrient if you had a, you know, if you had a glass of red wine or something. You might, but there, some drug dealers even go further and you can just inject it into your arm, okay? You can take a drug that will actually just go to your pleasure center do you know nutritive good, and in fact, get you addicted. But there's so much money in it. This is one of the problems with these, with the sort of the technology and the kind of, you know, the fact that, that you know, marketing and advertising are designed to get us to choose this product as opposed to that product. And so if people start to crave the product, that's fabulous for the people who are selling it, okay? But it isn't always good for the individual yeah. so what's going on with this in terms of technology i mean are so let's move up the hierarchy yeah. and think about the you know let's think about things like <clears throat> self-protection okay so 
My mind is designed to feel good when I get out of it. Dave and I were once biking through a scary neighborhood one night, and some guy yelled at us because we were in the, sure, we went through a trailer that. park, and it was a little scary, actually. And Dave, when we got out of that neighborhood, he said, there's something nice about living in a middle-class neighborhood, you know. Yeah. Um, so when you get safely into your home and you lock the doors at night, especially if, if, you, if you felt scared walking home, uh, it feels good, okay. Well, so we have mechanisms designed to protect. Our ancestors were in danger of actually being killed when they went out at night, okay, by predators and also by other human beings, okay, typically packs of males who were wandering around looking for more resources. Uh, so in the modern world, those that desire for safety is exploited by news services that feed you things to be afraid of all the time. Okay. So now, so now the, part of this, I just want to, part of it is that we're, we're designed also to notice threats, right? Like not this. only are we designed to, it's not like we watch the news and then when we turn it off, we feel good. It's also similar to the way like our mouth is designed to react to like fatty ice yeah, cream. Exactly. All oh, right. Our, a, our brain is also designed to, to really have trouble paying attention to anything else when there's threats around. Exactly. Right? That's a good point. So we, we want to know that there's a threat. We don't enjoy feeling threatened, but we don't want to miss it, okay? And so what the news media does is they feed us these threats. So the conservative news media feeds you, you know, uh, continual messages about there are people from other countries trying to break down the, the barriers of our country, come in here, rape people, steal from you, you know, uh, and, you know, and then the Canadians even are going to come in and force us to have socialized medicine, okay? Uh, now, if you're a liberal, you get different kinds of fears, you know. The, uh, the right-wingers are going to come in and they're going to take away grandma's social security check, okay. They're going to starve children. They're going to separate children from, they're going to do mean, nasty things uh, to, to uh, helpless people. Uh, and so it turns out that, that when you, once you start reading the news, It'll start feeding you. The, the, the big data systems are now designed to feed you more of whatever it is that you're afraid of. Because we click on that. We don't want to miss the threat. <laughs> it's like, oh, shit. What did Trump do today? Click. I want to hear about it. Yeah. Okay. And Trump is a master of this. Okay. He's gotten every, liberals and conservatives are listening to what he says because he's talking about potential threats all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and in and fact, then, so when you click it, then the algorithm gets the data. That that's a thing that you're afraid exactly. of, so then it can feed you gives more you of that. Gives you more, gives you more. And so basically, so this is basically exploiting our, our, because we're not threatened by all of these things. I personally, even though I live in Arizona near the border, okay, I probably get more, this is a liberal thing to say, and I'm sorry, but I, you know, I get a lot more benefits from having people from south of the border around me, okay? I get things like the Mexican food we had for lunch, okay? And there's lots of benefits to me to having, you know, people from south of the border. I've never been threatened with rape or, you know, uh, you know, and maybe I've had an occasional thing robbed from me and I don't know who did it, what their ethnicity was, okay? <laughs> but uh, so for me, it's not a gigantic threat, but if I'm continuously reminded that this is possible, look, here's this scary thing that happened. Here's one you don't even, we don't get the statistics on how likely this is. You know, this, this old classic research that shows that people overestimate the probability of dying from homicide as compared to suicide. Why? Because homicide's in the news. And homicide is a, it's a scary thing. Shit, there are people out there killing other people. I want to know all about it. Give me mm -hmm. every detail mm -hmm. about that. Who did that? Where did they do it?
okay? Mm -hmm. So our brains crave this, and the modern news media is designed to basically make money off that craving for information about threats. Yeah, and it's even, you know, sort of more extreme in terms of the, the parasitism part now with the way that these algorithms are working, because it used to be just that like, oh, if it bleeds, it leads, right? Like exactly. using things that seem threatening to engage people. But now it can be actually targeted to your to, specific yeah. fears. Well, yeah. And, and on top of that, we choose what to click on. You know what I mean? Like as as consumers, because mm -hmm. even like if you think back of the news, the nightly news that was on 30 years ago, we had three choices, right, of what nightly news we were going to watch mm -hmm. nowadays we have thousands of choices so mm -hmm. since it seems that if it bleeds it really does lead mm -hmm. when there's just these thousands of things it does seem like we've moved more towards a sensational mm -hmm. sort of thing because it's hard not to click on yeah. it right but you also bring up a really good point that we are the ones who are doing the clicking, right? So in theory, we should be able to get some control back over this. You know what this is like? Uh, you love this example of the, uh, the parasite that infects the brains of ants to get the ants to go out onto the ends of, yeah. uh, of a blade of grass the where they are then going to be the eaten. cordyceps fungus. Yeah. yeah, where they're then going to be eaten by cows. In a sense, these... These parasites of our fears are just like that. They're basically leading us in the direction, uh, in the wrong direction, and we're helping them. Hmm. We're helping them. We're telling them. We're giving away, unknowingly, information about what it is that we're most afraid of, and they're using it against us. So in this analogy, what's the, the cow that comes over and eats us, sir? <laughs> Um, it's the politicians. Although the I politicians. guess no, like maybe it's, it's, it's the other. The well, because some of the these um, cordyceps fungus that they actually get the ants to go to a high point where then they explode and the fungus goes all over the ant colony. Hmm. I, yeah, I, mean, I think so. Maybe turning you, turning you into like someone who's just spouting about all these threats all the time. Yeah. Maybe that's Go ahead, the analogy. Dave, say, I, I still yeah, think there's yeah. a thing where uh, ultimately this is to drive ad revenue, right? This yeah. is the, the right. goal. This is, and so it's, I think the best example is almost when you think of like, uh, I want to say Edward Jones, but he's the, that's the financial guy. Who's the guy who... Do, you, Doesn't matter. You know, Just go. go but on. he has the show where he says, you know, okay, there's frogs out there who will turn your kid gay unless you buy my anti-gay powder. Huh. Um, and so, and I think that that is like the extreme example of you get the fear going and then you sell people. So like the cow is that, that thing I, that people buy at I, the end of the day. I think the cow is, um, it's the news media and it's the politicians because they're continuously, you know, Steve Newberg apparently knows, uh, some politicians and his wife gets involved. And what he told me is that as soon as they win one election, the first thing they do is to go out and start collecting money for the next election. That's their job, is to just get money. They get a lot of money. We're yeah. increasingly spending more and more and more money. So these fears are helping them. We're stuffing their mouths. So everybody's wondering, why are the Republicans all online? 
with Trump because he's helping scare their their people to contribute more money to them. And mm. why are now the Democrats are now looking for and everybody's talking about, are we going to come up with somebody too radical? OK, well, the more radical you are, the more money you're going to get. You know, the more you can scare me about how bad the Republicans are going to destroy the world, you know, the more I'm going to send you a hundred dollar contribution. OK, and so. I think the politicians are, I don't think they're consciously thinking, I want to parasitize, but they are, they are parasitizing. They're the cows that are eating us off the ends of blades of grass after we've been beautifully scared by the, the extreme media. Uh, now, how, how about um, some of the other fundamental motives? So let's, th- let's go through each one yeah. of them and think about yeah. this. So, so I've, uh, I've fed myself, okay? Uh-huh. I've protected myself from the bad guys. Uh, and now the next thing I want to do when I'm developing as a child is to make some friends, okay? Uh, and we all, we all have to do all of these things throughout the rest of our lives. But, you know, so uh, we have a bunch of systems that are designed to make us feel good when we're hanging out with other people, when we're playing, okay, with other people, and when we're cooperating with other people and sharing with other people. And so that's a system. It's a very powerful system, and it gets exploited by things like Facebook, you know, I don't know whether Facebook is a, is a mosquito or, or what it is, but, you know, it might even be like a clownfish. It might be helpful to us because it makes it real easy. We've all been moved all around the world with mobility. We're not near our old friends. And so you go on Facebook and you can see, you can contact your friends from junior high school. You can see if the, you know, if Athena Actipus is on, okay, I can click and see, oh, yeah, look, she's, oh, look, she's in Arizona. It's click, really good for creeping. And I can friend her. Okay. <laughs> yes, well, you're making it creepy, but it's also good because sometimes well, your yeah. actual real yeah. old friends contact sure. you. And then you have a network of, you know, all these hundreds and hundreds of people, most of whom aren't necessarily your closest friends in the world. But that is a that's kind of beneficial to us. But at the same time, you know, the more we use it, the more money that Facebook gets, and then the more Facebook can basically can start to take a little bit more. There's an incentive for them to say, okay, we've got this information about all these people and all their friends. How can we use that? Who can we sell that to? Mm-hmm. No, no. There's a, there's another aspect that I think you've talked about a bit, um, and not in this podcast, but just in general. Which is that, so Facebook, apart from any money they take or any influence they, they put on us, there's also a thing where, through their very existence, they parasitize our time, right? Oh, um, yes, that's yeah. true. And well, and the thing is, like, as we are on Facebook and more and more people are on Facebook, and it becomes the place where you you know, have those social connections and learn about what's happening with your friends, it's almost like they're gaining a monopoly on... Your time. On not that, but not only that, but also the social affiliation, right? It's like, mm-hmm. that's the place, right? And so you have to spend your time and attention on Facebook to and, get that. And they're yeah. replacing the sort of genuine affiliation, right? I think right, that's and there one is of the some issues, Is yes. that, like, yeah... Yeah. Also, you, you mean if like, you click like, that's not genuine affiliation? <laughs> well, what you've you've researched this, right? Or I didn't research a, it, but I but okay. um. But he has speculated about it. Yeah. So. Well, no, I actually I've read a little bit about. It. Gene Twenge has a beautiful article in the Atlantic which said how the iPhone destroyed a generation, and she has some data there that suggests, and I don't know how replicable this is, but it's it's certainly worth thinking about. 
that since kids have gotten iPhones, they're less likely to go on dates, they're less likely to go out and hang out with their friends face to face, but they spend more and more hours on social media. But it turns out that the more hours you spend on social media relative to the amount of time you spend with real friends, the more depressed and anxious you are. And then if you're somebody on the other side who actually spends relatively more than average time with real friends versus on social media, you're happier than, uh, than other people. So it looks like, it's sort of like what heroin does for us. Okay, heroin makes us feel good. It, it capitalizes on this desire to have our, you know, our uh, gustatory pleasure centers uh, satisfied. What Facebook is doing is it's giving us satisfaction of our affiliative needs but it's not doing as good a job of it. We're basically getting an ersatz. We're getting a kind of a fake version of real friendship. And there's a lot of other things that happen on Facebook. It gives you this false sense of, because you know, everybody posts on Facebook, Dave was talking to me about this the other day, they post, oh, I'm eating at a fancy French restaurant in Paris. And that makes you think, what am I doing? <laughs> I'm sitting here working. You know, and there are, Friends are all in Paris, you know, whether in Barbados, you know. Um, well, but this actually speaks to yet another motive that's kind of parasitized, which is self-presentation, uh, right? Yeah. Like you yeah. want to present yourself well, and Facebook offers this way where you can completely manage every aspect of your image. I mean, exactly. aren't right. there like these yeah. apps where you can like have your picture of yourself processed too before you I post it that. to oh, you make like the, yourself uh, like yeah, more I know attractive? Like the Snapchat sort of filters. There's a, it, uh. like I know there's like on Instagram they do a lot of. So I can like, have my face morphed with George you, Clooney and just look a little you, bit. You more. can have it. You, like there's a there's a filter that'll make you look younger. Uh, there's probably a filter that'll like make you look more masculine or more oh, feminine okay. and like wow. yeah there's and so uh, yeah people interesting right, but yeah so that taps into this sort of status right the, status the self-presentation self okay. yeah, yeah. Um, so that's like the so, next so you want to go into that that seems like yeah so again when our ancestors gained status, it was good for them, okay? Because those with high status, if they're males, they have more access to mates. If they're females, they have more access, access to resources. So for males, there's a double payoff. For females, there's only a single, but it's a pretty good payoff, okay? Getting resources. When you have high status, you get to drink at the watering hole first if you're, uh, you know, most primates. And this is true for humans as well. You get, you live in a nicer house, you know, you get more respect, uh, you get a private office and so forth. And so status is something that has always come with some benefits, also with some costs, but uh, in general, we'd rather have increased status than have people scorn us to have, you know, to lose status, okay? And so uh, we're designed to want to gain some status. And a real parasite on that is computer games. Okay, because how do we, how do I know how well I'm doing? So in academia, I count. How many citations do I get? You know, I do a blog for psychology today, and I've done a couple of them this week after HBAS, and I go on every day and count. How many hits did I get? Ooh, I'm in the most read section. Oh, yeah, well, man, mm, yeah, people are paying attention to the bull crap that I'm spouting, okay? And so I get to count things, okay? And I'd say that actually in the case of things like my citations or, you know, uh, the number of people who've, you know, say bought my books, it's something real. It's actually, there is some real benefit there. But this desire to count, Count, it gets exploited by computer games because when you're increasing your numbers, when you're increasing your numbers of book sales, that's a good thing, okay? But when you're increasing your your numbers on what's a computer game that our kids One play? That still has score. Um, well, there, there's a I, I could think like 
if you play a game like The Legend of Zelda, because they don't points aren't as big a thing as they well, there used was to one be. That, there was one but, that I had on just the, the, oh, the, you, well, that had this picture of apparently. Well, well, what I was going <coughs> to say is that there there's levels. You there, can, there's also they now have this thing of you'll solve a quest for somebody. Uh-huh. And they'll say, oh, thank you, you're the hero of the town, right? Okay. And so they, they have mm. a really more, a, sort of a more direct way of tapping into this. Mm-hmm. But don't um, they also have levels? Cool. They have levels that you can Yeah, you know, like achieve. if somebody's playing, like when Liam would yeah. play like Overwatch, you could like, you could get better, you, can, you know. Yes. Um, and you can raise your level, you can get of, more points, okay? You can get more life or whatever. Oh, that's true, right. Points, and even so. in like, yeah, in, right. in like role-playing games, you get sort of, yeah. Yes. So. But so it turns out the kids who spend a tremendous amount of time on those games, and that means most kids now, um, they actually are taking time away from their studies. And it turns out that if they were getting points in school, they'd be benefiting themselves in life because they're going to want to get into into a good college. They're going to want to get a good job. The more time you spend racking up points and racking up successes in the game in computer games, unless you want to become a professional computer gamer. Okay, which I don't think there's a lot of jobs in that domain. There's computer game designers, but there, even then, yeah. you better there, be there doing both, something but different. But neither one, actually, neither one is a very good industry to get into these yeah. days because uh, there's more people who, there's far more people it. who would like to have those jobs than yes. there are jobs okay. available. Okay, so, right. Um, it's like so. a typical thing. If it's too much fun, it's like being, a, it's to do it. being, being like a, a professional athlete yeah, or exactly. a musician. Um, okay. so. one, yeah. one other thing I'd like to add with the computer games, though, is they also, they tap into that self-protection thing a lot too ah, i think okay. it's that, that ah. combination um yeah oh that's like, right because somebody's always attacking you and so you're yeah. actually yeah you're protecting yourself and then you're getting more and more status it's like you're becoming a personal harry potter but yeah. in real life mm-hmm. um you're not getting anywhere yeah mm-hmm. well and at least the games that existed when you know i was a kid there's also the mating motive in there right there's like the princess that you were trying to save mm-hmm. yeah i think right I, I don't know that that's so much these days not, anymore but it, I, I mean, I think that I think all entertainment media these days does its best to tap into all seven motives as much as it can. Yeah, um, but even so, well, so the only game that I play these days is a game called Threes, which I hate to even bring up because it's addictive, but it has nothing. Oh, yeah, it, it has, has points, nothing but has numbers. Points. Nothing sure. but numbers. Okay, it's just it's combining numbers. First, you combine twos with ones to make threes. Then you combine threes and threes to make sixes, and then it keeps going up. And the more of those you can double the higher your score. And then it tells you at the end what's your, what's your score. And it's only numbers. And I have spent, you know, I might even say 100 hours on that game okay. trying to stat- rack up numbers when I could have been working on a published paper, okay, which would have actually resulted in some benefits for you me. You could have racked up those students. numbers. Yeah, I could have racked up. Those numbers make a difference because they influence, you know, they influence my salary, okay? And so, you know, uh, they influence those other numbers of your salary. Yes, the other numbers. So, uh, that, <laughs> that number, I can take that number to the bank and buy more Haagen-Dazs double chocolate fudge. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> With that number, okay, that at least has some something real in it. Yeah. So then we got so status. So it gets exploited by things like computer games mm-hmm. and probably lots of other things as well. Uh, you know? Yeah, actually, I'm going to throw out a couple more. Uh, well, certainly YouTube. Uh, and Instagram, anything that has like buttons, Reddit. Oh, like that's right. Those exactly. really, those really mm-hmm. tap into. You know, Reddit has like a high score for your life, essentially, for everything mm-hmm. you've ever 
Wow. Written. Oh, um, really? In terms okay. of like, yes. no and your likes. Of, yeah. yeah. How many likes? Exactly. Likes. likes. So you say so. something. In fact, people, do, the, the, the things get combined because if I put up some really nasty thing about Trump, a bunch of my friends, I don't do that. Okay. So I stay away from the stuff on, but some of my friends do. And I'm often likely to say like when somebody puts some really clever, nasty thing about a politician, like, like. So if I were doing that, I'd be combining sort of the, I'd be feeding you fear and then you'd be feeding me status uh, in <laughs> return for me feeding you fear. You'd be paying the you'd be paying the mosquito. So, so one other interesting thing about like Reddit is Reddit has essentially it used to be people would be paid to write content, right? Oh really? And Reddit doesn't pay any of the people who provide its content. Hmm. They only people only get paid in likes, right? Like it's an really? entire web page that's like kept alive. By likes, yes, um, exactly. and so so they've completely taken having to pay people. It's, it's like they've taken the academic model of us writing things <laughs> for. I mean, we have for a nothing. salary, right? But we're not getting paid per no. content. In fact, we have to pay usually to get yes. our things published, and yes. well, now, we just generalized it to the broader public. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. No, that is interesting. The whole publication game. It's like that people. People pay, now they want to pay. So if we're going to have open science, that actually means if Elsevier and these, these and Sage have their way, what open science means is actually you pay to publish your paper with Elsevier and Sage, and they continue to make a lot of money kind of parasitizing academics' desire to get ahead. Uh, and in fact, that's set up in such a way that it's got this, this the rich get richer, okay? Right. Because you have to have a grant in order to be able to yeah. pay two thousand yeah. dollars to get open your paper science, published. That sounds great, sounds but then great. if it's actually creating a lot of inequality, then it's not so great, right? So yeah. mm -hmm. no, it's definitely parasitic. Yeah. It's yeah. definitely, it's, and I'm not sure whether it's mosquito-like or um, getting closer to the uh, parasitic wasps. Yeah. There's a big fight now going on in academia. Right. Uh, but that's true in general, you know, in some sense, the publication business is in the interest of generating funds in any way that they can. And that's the way that the economic world goes around. Um, yeah. So what goes after that? So after I've gotten status, if I'm a male in particular, now I can move on to trying to find a mate. Okay. Uh, and so we're designed, all of us, our ancestors all found at least one mate. We wouldn't be here to talk about it. Okay. So we have strong mechanisms designed to find mates. That gets parasitized by things like these dating apps, okay? Things like that basically, you know, I, I was reading some article on the number of swipes that a guy has to do in order to get a date, and it's something in the thousands, okay? Because there's, because the things, there's a natural tendency for females to be more selective and careful because of differential parental investment, which I don't know if you want me to go into what well, that is. Just if a woman's going to have a baby, she's got to gestate it. And then at least evolutionarily, she'd be breastfeeding it too. So that's a lot of calories, right, so a lot the, more investment compared to so, what a male. So, but, yes, males so, get but the thing is, so then that means that a, a woman needs to, she would like to pick a male who's going to either contribute fantastic genes or contribute to the rearing of the offspring. Or, or I, yeah, yeah, ideally. That would be my preference. Yes. Um, and so... Uh, <laughs> So that's sort of where differential. So, yeah. Brand, so more picky. Yes. Yeah. Which, which I think also in this this mate mating phase, it's not like because you made it sound like well guys then have to mate, but both people have to mate, both, and this is yes. a really this is a big important decision for women, right? This mm -hmm. mate selection. 
Oh, for guys, it's a less of a you know. It depends guys how just much they're going to invest, though, right? Yes. If males are going to invest a lot, then it's a more important. Decision. If they want a long, right. if they want a long-term mate, then they want to be extremely careful yeah. and selective. Okay, um, but if they're interested in short-term mating, okay, then they're dealing with. The, we've done some research on this where we ask people, "What are your criteria for short-term and long-term mates?" And what we find is, if you think about a date. Both sexes want someone who's about average in intelligence. If you think about someone you're going to marry, both sexes want somebody who's well above average in intelligence. If you think about someone for a one-night stand, women want somebody who's smarter than the average guy they're going to date. But guys are actually willing to have a one-night stand with a woman who isn't as smart as the person they'd be willing to date. I don't know how that actually works itself out in real life, you know, but that's... <laughs> On men's... Tinder, I think. Yes, it does, <laughs> right? That's exactly where it is, right? But then who's going to make out in Tinder? It's only going to be those guys with the extremely good, the muscular, handsome, you know, guys with a, you know, symmetrical face and a beard, you know, the George Clooney's of the world. Um, and uh, so when you go on a system like this, somebody's making some money off it, okay? Uh, and in some sense, I don't know, it's maybe kind of mutualism because it's helping people meet one another, but at the same time, I actually think in the modern world, it's not doing us that much good because people have, you know, uh, there's a lot of people who get kind of depressed over the, uh, the outcomes that they have. And they, you know, I to talk to our cleaning lady who said she went on and she had like a thousand guys making an offer in the first day and she just went off immediately because it was overwhelming, okay? And then I talked to guys who are like thousand swipes <clears throat> and then, you know, people... Also, people have an inclination to present themselves not using an old picture or whatever, or their best picture, the best angle, you know, from when they were in high school. Or maybe um, one of those pictures that they've the artificially that you were talking about. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. put through one um, of those uh, filters. Right. So, you know, in some sense, there, there is, you know, technology is kind of riding that motive, okay? And then it also rides it, well, look, take the next motive, which is to, basically maintain relationships because yeah. our ancestors can I ask a question real yes. quick before we move on because is there so that taps I know for guys those like apps like Tinder and things really tap into that sort of mate acquisition sort of motive in terms of always making it seem like hey maybe maybe somebody's going to say yes next time you know and so there's another smiling face looking at you yeah exactly <laughs> and yeah. so um, what about though are there Robo parasites for for women for mate selection because it seems like there must be because it's such a or maybe you know like well a lot of the other dating websites I think they're they have mostly women on them really yeah, yeah. I think so like the ones that are for long term relationships yeah I think so okay. I, I mean I'm not a expert More on this women. but um, yeah there's more more women typically on them. I thought I'd heard that almost all of these sites have more men. Like OkCupid okay, even has more men. Than I, I think it also depends on the ages. So like the uh, ones who are for people who are a little bit older are definitely right. I know it used to be that like Match had more women than yeah. men. I don't know if that's still the case. Yeah. Uh -huh. But um, I could see, right, that idea of, I guess probably the dating apps are... They're are probably doing the same. Term. Well, yeah, yeah, but I'm thinking yeah. for women, they might be where it's like you're giving them a choice of a lot of, a lot of men. Um, but, but I was just trying to think. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, any other? I think these. I, and you know, I, 
unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, have really no idea what the differences are among these apps, other than that Tinder is like, you know, basically so short term meeting. Um, and like Match, I think, is more like right. people are looking for uh, long term mates. But yeah, somehow, you know, people sort of sort, I think, based on what they're looking for, figure it out. And then, yeah, anyway. So one of the ads that I saw for Tinder, it shows three attractive women, kind of uh -huh. as a fuzzy photo, you know, yeah. but they're basically, they definitely have, you know, nice figures, okay? Uh -huh. And they're kind of looking like they're dancing, kind of, and it's, and it says, single is a terrible thing to waste. Clearly that's appealing to men, because they're yeah. showing these beautiful women, and it's like, oh gosh, look at all, there's single women out there that look like this, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, and so... Now, I don't think that when we say parasism, it isn't always with evil intent, okay? I think that these apps are, in the same sense, Ben and Jerry, they're nice guys, okay? They want to make you feel good. They're like, you know, the Italian or Greek mom who feeds you. Come on, you know, in Italy, I went to Italy, it's manja, manja, manja. You know? um, and there's no evil intent there, okay? And I think it's similar here. There isn't always evil intent. These people just want to, they want to make a profit giving people what they want. So, all right, you know? all right. how about this one? Does this tap into mate selection? It might tap into mate retention, but it's not technological, but the diamond industry. Is that... Yes, the diamond industry is definitely one of these things that... Um, we know diamonds have no real intrinsic value, except they're hard. They'd be, they're really useful for tools, okay? Um, <laughs> and they're not really even the prettiest gem out there. But the, the company from... What's the company that's so famous? The Dutch company... Um, that that runs most of the diamonds. De Beers. De Beers. De Beers did an incredibly good job of making diamonds. First of all, they slowed the, the, the apparently the market value of diamonds, they're not that hard to find, would be well above the market value of iron, but not that expensive. They might be worth about ten dollars for a one carat diamond, given how hard they are to find. What? But what yes, what De Beers did is they slowed down they the controlled production. the supply. <laughs> they controlled the supply. They lowered the supply. And then they paired diamonds with love. They, yeah, And this is really for mate retention, but they basically made it like if you really care, you know, diamonds last forever. So if I'm willing to give you a diamond, and the more I pay now, if I'm a man, the more I pay, the more that shows that I have status and resources that I want to burn on you. Uh, and so, yes, the diamond industry is is an exploitation yeah, but of our mate retention mechanism. But also status potentially right because it's a signal that you have resources yes, to bring. but i have that yes yeah. that i have you know how yeah. much but, but it, in also of, my commitment to you you know because if i'm poor and i buy you a one carat diamond i'm really you know i'm really committed to like a costly signal yeah right? and if i'm rich and i buy you a one yeah. carat diamond so oh, you can buy this guy can buy me one carat diamonds you know right um, yeah and, once you get people believing that this is a signal then it becomes a real thing yes right right yeah it becomes yeah, yeah. So what comes after mate retention? Does anything come after that? Well, mate retention, I think we have one thing that we've kind of skipped over. One, okay. of, the, one of my favorite things that exploits that. It's uh, Ashley Madison. Okay. Mm. Um, so mate retention is a hard thing to do. Okay. People don't, you know, um, you guys have been married. You know, you know this, that people, there are natural conflicts involved, you know, trying to raise kids and, you know, limited amounts of time and resources. And yeah. so it's a I delicate. Don't know if you know this, Doug, but. My husband, Carlo, he, he's like, he read your paper and he was like, oh, like mate retention is a thing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Carlo, <laughs> yes. 
Yes. So he learned about mate retention from you. He didn't realize that that was something that actually needed to. Glad to have been uh, of benefit there. (laughs) 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 But it's it's a tough thing to do. Really, it's a tough, and it requires some investment, and uh, and so in comes things like Ashley Madison, which basically you know I saw one of their ads, which shows this very beautiful woman, um, and it's basically saying it's basically insinuating you know you can do this and lie about it you know why Mm. you know why be faithful when there's so many opportunities out there and so because relationships are hard and everybody goes through a period where they think this is no my partner doesn't appreciate me as much as i should be appreciated we all have these biases you know all the stuff that shows that when you ask people how much of the housework they do it adds up to over a hundred percent and, right. You know, how does that happen? That's why houses are so clean, right? Because yeah. people are doing 150% of the housework. But it's just each person has a tendency to see themselves as giving a little more than they actually give and their partner is taking a little more than they actually take. Um, and so there's going to be times when, because of our inherent self-serving biases, we're going to think, why am I in this relationship? And so something like Ashley Madison says, well, you can just sneak off and have a little affair on the side and, you know, and well, it's, it just, it, yeah, it's it's also promising mate acquisition within the context of mate it's, retention, Oh, I right? guess it's 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 promising. I guess, but I guess the mates. secrecy thing leads to the, another mating yeah. opportunity, even when you're now. But then, attached. It, by keeping it quiet, I guess that's where right. the mate retention thing. Right. I'm not. Well, it's not actually helping you retain mates. It's basically it's parasitizing on a natural conflict that happens within long-term relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and. And then, so the final one in the end mm-hmm. is, you know, kin care. Okay, why do we do all this? Why do we, why do humans even s- spend time together? It turns out that most mammals don't, 95% of males and females, their matings, their mating strategy is a lot like Los Angeles 1972. Okay, it's one night stands, period. That's it, you know. Uh, there's no commitment for most mammals. Okay, the females only take the genes from the most f- physically fit males that have been able to compete with the other males and who show off how attractive they are and so forth. Uh, but humans aren't like that, okay? Humans, the males hang around. They don't always hang around for life, but they often hang around for years. And they, in fact, f- over half the time, they do hang around for life. Even in the United States, about over half, but it's, you know, something in that range. Um, and so uh, humans hang together. Why? Because we have these especially help- helpless infants. We have infants who come into the world First of all, females, female humans don't function as well when they're pregnant as, say, female cows do because we're upright posture and suddenly you've got this big thing hanging in front of your body and not as mobile as you used to be. Uh, then, then the baby comes out and it immediately starts nursing on the female and it's, babies are so helpless, you know. A little calf comes out and it can feed itself often, you know, very soon. It can certainly walk around on its own. Human beings have to be carried for like close to a year Okay, and the whole time they're sucking nutrients out of the mother. So uh, there was this co-evolution of these big-brained, helpless offspring with male investment in the in those offspring. So it helped us get to the big brain phase well, that we also, are. And also, right, intergenerational investment. Like there's a bunch of data about how like, hunter-gatherers wouldn't actually be able to have the reproductive rate that they did without having the parents or the grandparents basically investing so there's sort of this whole you know community of individuals in the family 
that would be contributing to making it mm-hmm. possible for for humans to have these really vulnerable offspring that require lots of years right. of care. And so we we have lots of strong mechanisms to care for our offspring. And how do those get parasitized? Uh, well, I mean, here's one sort of simple one, which is, you know, when you've got a kid. Okay, do you have any embarrassing stories about Dave you could just throw in at any this point? embarrassing stories about Dave? <laughs> You know, I had it more for, um, yeah, I have it more for, uh, we've already skipped over the sort of the mate acquisition phase. Okay. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that embarrassing, but it's like, um, you know how I said these things develop, they don't, they don't unfold. So young kids don't care at all about mate acquisition. They do care about friends. They do care about getting fed. They do care about protecting themselves from the bad guys. But they don't care about mate retention or mate acquisition because they don't care about mating. And they don't care about taking care of children because they don't have any children. Um, but so these things unfold developmentally. And I remember when Dave was at this critical phase, he was probably about 12 years old. And we we're driving along the coast of California, actually, and one of these surfing songs comes on, and it was a song by Jan and Dean, I think, called Surf City, and one of the lines in it was, two girls for every boy, and Dave said, yuck, (laughs) (laughs) and I said, really, and he said, why would you want to be in a town where there's two girls for every guy, Uh, and I said, trust me, Dave, let's wait a couple of years, and then when I told this story recently, Dave said, you're making that up. I, I never believed that. Okay. Did I? Did I say okay? Yes, you thought I was making it up because you didn't think you were ever that uninterested in you know uh, in mating opportunities. But you were not. You thought it was a yucky concept that there might actually be all these women floating. Two girls for every guy would be a bad thing. Uh, <laughs> and, so, and what happened is he eventually developed biologically. You know, testosterone did its thing, and suddenly all of us. And this is an interesting thing about the way these motivational systems work. Uh, once they come online, they can monopolize our attention. You know, they can make things all of a sudden, you know, when you're a prepubescent guy, you don't care at all about, you know, you can kind of notice some women look pretty, some women, you know, whatever. Um, but then all of a sudden, when you're 14 years old, it's like, holy shit, you know, (laughs) there are Italian girls out there. I'm like planning my trip to Surf City. (laughs) Where is this Surf City anyway? And what is this I heard about in Australia? Females want to have more sexual partners than they do in China. Where do I want to travel to? (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, it totally, it totally changes your, you know, once these motivational systems take over, they can, they can really direct you, direct a lot of energy to them. So what about the kink care one? How does it get exploited? I'm not sure I have a good example. Maybe you guys could help me. But I know for me, the iPad is, is one that's sort of, it's an interesting, it's a technology that helps babysit. Okay. And almost everybody says, going to take your kid on the plane, get an iPad. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, in fact, we bought uh, Dave's brother. Actually, we could even pick on Dave here. Sure. You know, uh, when we used to drive around the country a lot, we traveled an awful lot in the summer, did a lot of camping. And Dave got one of these devices. Game Boy. A Game Boy. A Game Boy. Uh And it was like, we thought, oh, this is great because it keeps him from whining and saying, when are we going to get there? He was just, he's perfectly happy to sit in the back of the car. Tetris. And and then... I mean, it was go- great. I don't know what he's complaining yeah. about. <laughs> well, I'm complaining about this because we'd be driving along, and I, I swear to God, it was, you know, it's like, Dave, look, the Grand Canyon. 
And he would, yeah, 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 hold on, hold on. I'm almost up to 12,783 points. Yeah. And then I'd say, no, it's the Grand Canyon. Look out the window. And he, yeah, nice. Okay. 12,783. <laughs> um, and so, you know, these technological devices, which can help us with babysitting, they turn around then and they get our kids addicted. And, you know, the I, the, uh, you know, you had a Game Boy, which only had a few games on it. You know, our kids have, you know, oh my God, iPads. That's crazy. With the, yeah, game, and the games are designed to get games, better yeah. and better and better and better and better at addicting the kids and keep taking their attention. So they won't complain on the plane, but they also, you can't get them to do their homework or to come to dinner. So th there's also, in that same vein these days, there's like, like Greta used to always play these virtual baby games, you know, ah. like, and those sort of also directly tap into this sort of kin care motive where you're mm. taking care of and they were terrible little games but she just loved you put the baby to sleep and then you you know and i mean and i remember like there was always that story in the news of like the couple the who couple yeah they like had like did you ever hear this about no. like they were parents and their actual kid died while they were taking care of a virtual baby they were what? playing like a sims type game with a little virtual baby and they sort of they neglected their own child. Now, yeah. I don't know that I've ever looked at the data on that. I have a hard time believing it, but it's like... it's an urban legend? It could be an urban legend. I thought I looked it up, but we should, we'll yeah, look it up. Yeah, yeah. It's so. a good story because I know that Oliver Singh talks about it because he wants to get some grant to do technological research. And he uses that same story. And he's a very rigorous guy, so he probably actually found the story. And, you know, but... It's certainly the case that it sounds possible to me that people can, you know, people, you know, your younger brother, Dave has a brother who is 15 years old now. I'm not sure he would come to dinner on oh, his own. No, you know, Finn I have would, to tear him away. You know, and Finn it's would like, probably starve to death. Like he'd probably, yeah. if I just let him. Certainly, they lose weight if, if we didn't yeah. force them to. You know, oh. I'm going to come in and close that thing now. And it, the other thing is, it results in. It results in anger. You take the, it's like you're taking the kid's um, heroin away. You know what I mean? It results in anger. <laughs> and so here's this thing that we, we got to help us, you know, babysit. And it turns around and it basically is taken, it's, it's zombified right. our kids' It minds. works too well. Like it works, it works too yeah. well. But then it actually can interfere with your real parenting motives of like wanting to help your child develop and have a successful yes, existence exactly. right yeah. no because they're wasting now their, their brains are being wasted actually you'll be happy to hear this one of the uh women who works in my lab uh she refers to these as zombie boxes she has two children and she said yes uh the uh the ipad is a zombie box yeah basically it just takes your kid's brain and eats it. <laughs> so, I have a, a question about um, self-actualization. Okay. So, in the Maslow approach, right, self-actualization is the, the thing that you do after you've accomplished everything else. What's your view about what self-actualization? Is there a self, an evolutionary self-actualization? So... This is one of the questions that we get. It's a really good question because what, when we rebuilt Maslow's pyramid, we took self-actualization off the top, just sliced it, and mm -hmm. uh, apparently threw it away. But we didn't talk about that in a second. And at the top, what we put are some things that Maslow completely ignored, completely ignored, made acquisition, made retention, and kin care. For him, it was like if you got to the point where you had satisfied your 
social needs, you'd move above that. You'd go off and you'd write poetry. He liked to talk about poetry, music, and art. You'd go off and do things that were only designed to satisfy your higher intellectual need for beauty and understanding. And that all sounds lovely, especially to academic intellectual nerds. That's, yeah, that sounds great, right? Uh, but what we argued is that the, what really people, any organism that was designed to stop caring about social motivation when they had achieved all these other, with they, all these difficult to achieve goals to now move off and go play the guitar by themselves, that doesn't sound like a functional. It sounds nice. It sounds like cool to philosophers and nerds. Okay. But could we really have been designed that way? We thought, no, what we're designed to do is to turn all of that energy we got. We got some status and we got some friends. Now let's use those, you know, let's use that social capital to find some mates and to have some offspring. Okay. Not that we consciously think yeah. that. So that's can the way I, we're designed. Can I uh, jump in now? Because yeah. for the, you know, given that this podcast is about zombification and self-actualization, seems like maybe it has some relation to that. Like, is there maybe a, a sort of cap on top of that evolutionary version of the pyramid, which is like about de-zombification, so, like reducing the number of things that have like parasitized you along the way as you try to accomplish all hmm. these so goals? So since I've sort of worked with my dad on like some book proposals on this topic, you mind if I take a shot at answering this? Because yeah. I think that there's a sense in which like... Okay, so evolution as a philosophy is one that doesn't necessarily provide a moral framework the same way a religion like Christianity would, right? Like you could say, I want to have lots of babies, and maybe that way you're succeeding. Or you could say, I'm just going to make my own brain happy by taking heroin. And either one of those two are sort of... These don't sound like good options, Dave. No. <laughs> and so, so in terms of this framework, I think it's like... I don't know that it promises some sort of transcendent thing above sort of success and contentment for yourself and the people you care about, right? And so the sort of top of the pyramid, which we have, we have kin care at the top, but that doesn't actually mean it's more important than things like affiliation. It partly is there because it's it, that it sort of comes last developmentally. developmentally yeah. But the real, I think, promise of living a sort of good life according to these motives is actually it's similar to what you're saying of avoiding zombification in any one thing. It's, it's just creating a sort of like I I've talked about it in terms of it's this pyramid of life. And what you're doing is you're not really climbing to the top of a pyramid as much as you're building a pyramid that won't crumble on top of you. And so essentially it's, just living your life in a way that you are happy and content and your family is happy and content with how you're living your life and your friends are happy and content with how you're living your life. And I think that's essentially the promise of the pyramid. Does that, right. does that sound? Yeah, I, I would say I would agree with what you just said. And it's, you know, and I don't think desomification is at the top. I'm agreeing with that in some sense at every level, we want to be sure that we are investing our resources in such a way that we're really getting a maximal, a good payoff for them, okay, rather than throwing them away, rather than being tricked into getting the Bernie Madoffs of the world, getting rich at our expense. I say, so I would say that at every level, we want de-zombification. But, but another yeah. thing about self-actualization, I would say, is that 
I think it's a real thing. I think that people do have a desire to fulfill themselves philosophically and intellectually and musically, but I actually think it's mostly part of, in fact, we've done research on this, and we ask people, the, what would you be doing? Maslow had this idea of self-actualization, which is the idea of fulfilling your highest potential. What would you be doing if you were fulfilling your highest potential? And we asked people to describe what they would be doing. And they often said, I'd be doing, I'd be writing a novel, or I'd be, you know, uh, making films for Disney, or I would be managing a business and, you know, sailing a yacht, okay? Then we asked them to say, we told them about the fundamental motives. and said, so there's these different motives in life, like making friends and keeping friends, uh, gaining status uh, and respect, uh, finding and keeping mates, okay? And we, we gave them each of those fundamental motives. Then we asked them, what you just said you'd be doing if you were self-actualized, which of these motives does it connect to? <clears throat> and the highest one was status. Uh, and that was a little bit higher for men than for women, okay? But for women, it was also important. Status was, that's what they'd be doing if they were fulfilling their highest so potential. To me, the thing that seems similar across all those examples is actually the autonomy part of it. Right. Like that's something that someone else isn't telling you to do. You're not working for someone hmm. else. You're not doing what someone else is asking you to do. That's interesting. Yes. We didn't give them autonomy as a choice, to tell you the truth, you know, that, that you could just be, you know, um, right. Uh, Being free is an interesting, it's really interesting because it doesn't fit with what I've been talking about here. In some sense, there's no such a thing as real, real autonomy is not a good thing to seek. You know, really being totally autonomous is not good. You want to be connected, although you don't want to be connected in a way that you're being forced to be connected. Okay, you want, you don't want imprisonment, mm -hmm. yeah. okay, but you want mutuality. Yeah. Okay. Right. I'll bet you a lot of times the people who are thinking about writing the great American novel, they're probably also picturing the the book signing tour, the you know what I mean? The, yeah, the, the, yes, exactly. Um, They're picturing being on NPR, you yeah, know, talking about the, about what, why did you write this great American novel, uh, <laughs> Athena? Okay. Uh, and, you know, I think that's what's, what's driving people is a desire for status, but also a desire for affiliation was pretty high because if you accomplish things, you'll also enhance your social capital. Okay. You'll become more valuable, okay, to the extent to which I do useful and good things, then I become a more, if I'm, for example, you know, let's put aside, even music, uh, well, music probably makes me attractive. It turns out that women are very attractive to guys with musical talent and with poetry and writing skills. And it's not because they like, from an evolutionary perspective, it's not that we're designed to be poet lovers, we're designed to appreciate good brains because if you get a mate mm, with a good brains. brain, <laughs> oh, yeah, and you can exploit that brain, and you can get some benefits from it, you know, because mates with good brains can solve problems, okay? And mates with good brains can pass on good genes to your offspring, okay? Because in order to be intelligent, to be a good musician, you have to have no developmental, you know, real serious anomalies, because if you were, you know, bilaterally, uh, you know, handicapped in some one sense. One of the best dancers I know actually is like one leg is significantly shorter than his other really? leg. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's overcoming a serious, a real handicap. Yeah. Right. But it also, it does show that probably in terms of, despite that, 
it's it's still a fitness cue, right? So he's got this. The fact that he's a good dancer, um, he yeah. or she. Yeah. Well, so it's, can I um, just bring us back to the mm-hmm. autonomy thing? Because I guess my sense of like self-actualization, if that there is such a thing as mm-hmm. that, is like what I am doing is like what I really what the deepest me really wants like not being driven by someone else's goals that's kind of like that's what i think about if i think about self-actualization right but would you want to be doing it all off on your own in a cave uh and you know in well maybe Antarctica. some of the time but not all of the time so, so right? here's an interesting yeah. so here's from my own life yeah. right i had when i graduated from film school i wrote a bunch of scripts right and so i would think i was self-actual as that actualized uh i was particularly self-actualized in the sense that when i sent them out they were sent back uh, <laughs> and i i personally didn't find that to be this wonderful transcendent experience and i wonder if people were to picture that right because mm-hmm. then because it was like i was clearly i was doing my own thing i wasn't doing what script readers right. wanted it's me like to be doing if you uh, successfully manage to do that then you would have felt like you were self-actualizing exactly because you would have gotten but the then, status and you would have gotten benefits and also it. there's a and connection the, right mm. you're writing a novel and people resonate with the novel i yes. think that's then you're a mat- mm. it's like now you've achieved this deep social connection mm. that i've had when i've read a great novel you know mm. and i'm like wow and so i, I think so if you can achieve those fundamental motives in like coming from a place where you're very autonomous, then maybe that is something like what we mean by self-actualization. That's an interesting idea. That's the idea that you, because there's, there's, there's something more appealing to being the person who writes the amazing screenplay than being even like the person who is the, yeah. you know, the gaffer or whatever, who's doing a very good job and they're part of a team, but it's not their vision. I just don't love the word autonomy here, but I okay. sort of see what you're saying. I think yeah. that in some sense, what, you know, what we appreciate, you know, what makes you self-actualized is that you've got one thing that you do so especially well that you actually stand out, okay? that That's the thing. So I don't think that's necessarily mm-hmm. autonomous so much as that you're picking the thing that you can excel at, okay? You're, when, you know... Pablo Neruda writes a poem or Pablo Picasso paints a painting, okay, they're doing something that, you know, they're really fabulously good at, okay. When Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dance, I don't know whether dancers regard them as good dancers, but certainly all the rest of us did when Mm -hmm. I was growing up. You know, you watch these people, whoa, look what they can do with their bodies. They were picking the thing that they were really good at and but they turned that into a real social success. Okay, they turned that into status, and they weren't thinking. Now, here's the thing: this in evolutionary biology, we think talk about the distinction between proximate and ultimate motivations. We're not designed to be in touch with our ultimate motivations. We're not designed to know why. We're designed to know what I want to do next, mm-hmm. but I'm not designed to know why I want to do that. I mean, one good metaphor for this is that. You know, when you think about birds who migrate north and south, uh, apparently, you know, what makes them migrate is something like the length of the day, okay? That's the trigger for their migrating, okay? And ultimately speaking, the length of the day is just a cue that basically says that it's going to be getting colder in this part, so let's move to, you know, or opportunity is going to emerge in the north, because the days are getting longer, so let's move that way. Uh, but the birds aren't thinking either about the length of the day or about the 
about the genes that will be benefited from finding nests up north during the summer yeah, and so they're forth. They're responding to They're this. responding to yeah. this cue. Mm -hmm. And it ultimately, the system is designed to have them produce, you know, more eggs, okay? But they're not consciously aware. And I think this is true. You're saying we're just humans, zombies for our fundamental motives. We, we're zombies for our genes, in a sense, <laughs> you know, but we are, yeah. And we, so we feel self-actualized when we're just being autonomous as opposed to being those... Uh, just. Yes. If you feel, feel self-actualized when you're autonomous, and that's a good thing to say to yourself, great. But from an ultimate perspective, I'd say that, you yes. know, that that sense of wanting to sort of excel for yourself is ultimately done for others, not mm -hmm. even consciously, but it's, it wouldn't be there. We wouldn't have that desire unless the ancestors that really wanted to excel and really wanted to perform really well in something unique. We really like to be unique, okay? Uh, that would have had to have some social benefits or we wouldn't, it wouldn't be such a powerful human motivation. Interesting. So I think uh, we should ask our last question. Well, yeah, I think, I know we've been going for a while. Yeah. I I'd like to ask about... What's for dinner? And well, then, so yeah, have yeah the zombie... Apocalypse. Yeah. So what what's your zombie apocalypse scenario for like hijacking of these fundamental motives? Like if we were, you know, in a world where these fundamental motives, we just sort of like turn up the knob on them. So they're even mm. more intense yeah. or maybe they're getting hijacked just even I mean, more. Yeah, do, I mean, I actually think this is one of those where there could be zombie apocalypse. I think it's happening future. now in some sense. I think that basically politicians are getting... You know, the, the, the system is designed in such a way that they're, they're more and more and more and more scaring the shit out of us to get more and more of our resources, okay? And, you know, com companies like Ben & Jerry, they can't stop giving us sugars. I mean, we all know this now. You know, you don't, you, you don't have to read nutrition magazines to know that sugar is bad for you, but the food industry can't stop giving it to us. And we're getting worse and worse. We're getting fatter and we're getting more and more dependent upon our news things. I think it's actually, unless we can think of yeah, it's, some it's, it's ways... It's one of those feeds. Yes, but let me just actually say that I don't <laughs> want to be totally depressing to end up, but I think that that's the direction we're moving because the because big data you know, and profits are so strong that they're, they're basically sucking all this energy out of us. But I do think, I do think that we can design uh, inoculations and we can design a sort of a defense system, an immune system. In fact, we would pay, I, for example, would pay for programs that will control my son's time on the iPad and will control my time on the iPad. I would pay for programs that can help me avoid eating too much Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I would pay for programs that can help me get along better with my spouse, okay? And so, you know, uh, and they can help me, you know, we could have something that says, you're about to enter the zone. The button you're about to press right now, you just press the button. Now, you know, that if you press this button for Ashley Madison, here are some of the consequences that are going to happen. Okay? Now, Ashley Madison's not going to pay for that, but I would. I would pay for an immune system you know, that builds into my computer some information that says, well, Dave, we've been talking about doing this in some yeah, sense. Yeah, actually, to, to the point where I think maybe what's... Uh, I, I have another thought that I want to talk about okay, now, which is um, I also think there's a way to do a cure, right? Which would be... like cure. So let's say, for example, wow. we think about 
well, not necessarily a cure, but a, a rewiring of these mechanisms. So if we go back earlier, we were talking about wealth inequality, right? And these sort of group dynamics. And I was thinking, is there a way that we could leverage these same mechanisms to do a thing where it's like, like think about, you remember, remember the thing where you could adopt a kid and you get a letter for a, mm -hmm. for a, for a yes. kid. And so it's like, I wonder if you could Save have the children. Yeah. They could have things these days where you get upvotes for every person you've saved and things like that, you know? Wait, wait, um, saved? What do you mean? Like, so, so let's say, let's say there's people starving in wherever, third world country somewhere. And then I donate money to them uh -huh. or whatever, then I get, I get little, this little points. This is kind of like the you know? effective altruism movement where it's like very focused mm -hmm. on how do you spend your resources to, you know, save lives and improve lives. And this community that's built up around it is very much like, I think status, you get status from doing more for. Yeah. You know, I think and that's that, if they could that, exploit technology to help with that because, you know, rather than just kind of self-righteously saying, gee, you're wasting your your uh, contributions. Um, if there's a way that we could actually build in programs that tell us, okay, that I can actually see. In fact, it's getting kind of close to that now. When I want to buy a product, I can see the complaints about that product. If I'm going to contribute money to a politician, maybe I get to see their voting record. Okay, and or maybe you get I get to see, or if you're going to vote for a billionaire or buy from a billionaire's company, you can see how much of their money they've, like how many people they've helped, you know, if you were to uh, look at someone like mm -hmm. Bill Gates, who's given a lot of money away, you know, mm -hmm. um, like, I think these sorts of things, like you could use technology to make it visible to make, you know, the same way they tap mm -hmm. into these sort of status motives. So then right. It's like consumer reports does something where they tell you, you're going to buy this car. Okay. Here's the breakdown rates on this kind of a car as compared to that kind of a car. Here's the, you know, and they, then they make a, make a recommendation based upon educated. So we actually can use, we could use big data to actually give you fair and honest feedback about what the next choice you're about to make. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it seems like, uh, you know, in addition to the potential for kind of leveraging these reputational mechanisms, you know, maybe also having more of a sense of the interdependence that's there and how like we actually need for people in general to be okay for any of us to even be safe right ultimately yes, right. yeah maybe that, that could help too yeah there, again there's competing interests because the people there's a lot of money in being a parasitic wasp okay um and so all of us down at the bottom, you know, need to band together. It's like that the 1% movement was pretty successful in sort of at least building up some momentum to say, look, there's a lot more people who are being cheated than who are, you know, doing the cheating. Why don't we band together? Because there also are, like, there's real benefits to, there's social benefits to altruism. Right. If people mm -hmm. are aware of it, I think in terms of I think it makes people more attractive and it makes people right. more trustworthy. And so I do think coming but up. But then if you're just doing it for that, then <laughs> it I mean, undermines the value of it as a I signal. A little I, bit, no, I don't. I mean, I I've always had this sort of philosophy when I used to volunteer with people like with special needs that everybody everybody had some sort of agenda to some degree or another. And if, 
they didn't like you know it might be like to make so you go there to be, be social or you go there to sort of show people how to because you mm-hmm. like the accolades and it's like if you if we got rid of everybody who had some sort of selfish motive we wouldn't have had enough people to well, run the sort of organization you know but what I it mean? also depends what you mean by selfish right so right. like if it makes you feel good to do something where you're care taking of care of helpless kids. Yeah. Right. Then you, somebody who's cynical might say, well, it's selfish because you're doing it to make yourself feel good. But really evolutionarily, it's good, it's good selfishness, right? Like you're, you know, maybe on some ultimate level, you can say that like it benefits your genes, but it creates organisms that mm-hmm. have, altruistic motivations like that's actually the psychology of it so here's an interesting one of my favorite findings in psychology i bring it up all the time and it's from liz dunn at ubc it's this study that shows the following when you ask people what do you think would make you feel better spending twenty dollars on yourself or spending twenty dollars on someone else the Answer to that survey question is, well, spending $20 on myself. But she actually did some research where she went out on the campus at UBC and gave people $20, and she asked them to either spend it on themselves or spend it on others, and then come back. They came back the next day, and then they were asked how happy they are. And the ones who spent money on others were happier. Uh, And then she had some other research where she looked at people who got raises and looked at how much of the raise they, they spent on themselves versus on others ones who spent more money on others were happier. And this is correcting for how happy they were to begin with, okay? Um, Because it could be just happy people spend more on others. But no, that wasn't what it was. It was that independent of where you started out, those who gave more money to others were happier. And there are a number of findings that have converged upon this that we we are designed to feel good when we do something for other people. And it makes sense because we're social animals. And in fact, there are natural things that come. If you look at the people, we often talk about uh, Vanji Keep, who's a, uh, a friend of uh, one of uh, Dave's, uh, Dave's friend's mothers and uh, the wife of one of my long-term uh, friends, Rich Keefe. Uh, she's always going out and doing favors for people. Long story, sorry, to who, who she was. But there's a woman that we both know who is really good. <laughs> our at, friend Vanjie. Yes, our friend Vanjie. She's really <laughs> helpful. She's always smiling. She's always supportive. She always asks you a question about you that's sincere. She really cares about people. Well, you know, she's not doing this for any kind of cynical reason. She just, but it turns out that everybody likes her. And so when people see her, they hug her, they smile at her, you know what I mean? They, they would bring her food if she was uh, hungry. They invite her into their houses. They care about her. And it turns out that she is getting, there's a real benefit to being the really nice person. Uh, and it's not why you should be nice, but actually people should be aware of it. Because sometimes right. when people think, I want to be happy, why am I not happy? I want to be happy. The best thing for you to do is to not want to be happy. Try to make somebody else happy. Forget about you. Go out and make somebody else happy. And then, incidentally, (laughs) you will have made a stronger social network, and you'll probably get a little boost from it. Well, that is a really great way, I think, to end our our podcast today. And um, I just want to say that you should feel really good about yourself because I think you've just made us very happy with sharing your awesome brains with us this episode. Well, thank you. And if the whole world says that we're crazy, we don't need nobody anyhow. 
Zombified is a production of ASU and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. Thank you to the Department of Psychology, the Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative and the President's Office at ASU, and also the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics. Thanks to all the brains that help make this podcast, including Tal Rom, who does our awesome sound, Neil Smith, our amazing illustrator, Lemmy, the creator of our song, Psychological, and our awesome Z-team at ASU. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We are Zombified Pod and we are Zombified Podcast on Facebook. Our website is zombified.org. And on our website, you can find our t-shirts and our stickers and get your very own Zombified merch to help support us. Remember, we are all educational. We have no ads and we rely on your support to help make Zombified happen. So please uh, go on our website and buy merch or join us on Patreon for just $1 a month. You can help to make this podcast work. At the end of every episode, I share my brains and offer a story or connection to my work. And uh, today I just want to share a few thoughts, actually, which is that This episode, we recorded it before the COVID-19 pandemic, and so a lot has changed in terms of the landscape of our social interactions, um, and especially our interactions through technology. And so to me, I see two sides to this. One is that right now we have, in a way, a much greater vulnerability to being hijacked by social media and these social parasites that Doug talks about in our episode because we do not have the same opportunities for face-to-face interaction. So the things that we see on our social feeds are the things that algorithms are deciding to feed us. So that, I think, leads to some new vulnerabilities that we didn't have before when we were able to also have those face-to-face interactions much more regularly. Uh, I think there's also an opportunity though. And for me, I know, and for a lot of my colleagues and friends that I've talked to about this, the fact that we now are not able to sit down in person across from each other and have a conversation really brings into clear relief how much we value that and that we don't want to give that up indefinitely. You know, if if we were forced to only interact with each other through text messaging and, and Zoom for the rest of our lives, it would really, you know, be something that would have a dramatic long-term impact on us. Um, So I think by not having that face-to-face interaction, it makes it clearer how important it is to us. So perhaps we'll be able to use this situation as an opportunity to really think about what role we do want face-to-face social interaction to play in our lives so that when we come out of the other end of all of this, we can be a little bit more intentional about the kinds of social parasitism that we want to be involved with and those that we don't want to be involved with. Thank you for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you. Makes me 